want you to join with me in standing and turn to Psalm chapter 2. If you do need the Pew Bible, it's on page 309, Psalm chapter 2. And if you're using the uh, Summer in the Psalms Pray Guide, uh, we all read that. No matter if you just read one psalm a day for the last five days or followed the plan, you read 16, we all read Psalm chapter 2. If you haven't gotten one of these, there's a few more. We went back to print our second time, and so there are a few more, not very many. And if you didn't get one, go back there and grab it. And if you need help in understanding or, or explanation of how to do it, ask someone around you that's doing it, or you can come see me after the service. Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the blessing of hearing your word read, hearing it preached, being able to own multiple copies of your word, being able to have tools and guides to lead us into a deeper understanding of your word. But it's all about meeting you. It's all about meeting you and your son, about kneeling before you and allowing you to forgive us of our sins, which are many, and giving us the righteousness that we so desperately need. Father, you're a God of grace, but you're also a God of wrath. May you prepare our hearts to see you in your fullness, to see you as you really are. Father, we need this message this morning. We hunger, we thirst. Satisfy our deepest needs by a revelation of who you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last Sunday we started with Psalm 1, and uh, I think I shared that Psalm 1 is probably one of my favorite psalms of all 150 of the psalms that are collected in this book that we're looking at. Love Psalm 1. In fact, it's a great psalm. If you're wanting to memorize the psalm, I would encourage you to memorize Psalm chapter 1. It's uh, kind of a summer project my family and I are taking on of memorizing Psalm 1. It's, it's fairly easy to memorize that, and it just ha contains a lot of truth uh, for directing your way of living. Uh, as we learned, there's really two ways to live, the way of the righteous versus the way of the wicked. But I have to admit, as we come to Psalm chapter 2, this psalm, as I studied it this week, rocked my world. And, uh, and so I hope it does the same for you. In fact, I would be, as, I think I'll be bold to say that if you are with Christ this morning, if you are a Christ follower, this psalm will rock your world. And at the same time, if you are not yet a Christ follower, you have yet to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, this psalm, I pray, will rock your world. This is a phenomenal psalm that we come to here in the second chapter of the whole book of Psalms. Now, Psalm 2 is often classified as a royal psalm. In fact, I'm amazed at the level of interest we Americans have with the British royals. There's just something about a, a royal wedding or the coronation of a king or queen 
that just kind of fascinates us. It, it kind of captures our imagination. And while our founding fathers didn't think too highly of King George III, most Americans loved Lady Di, and now we're kind of infatuated, we're obsessed with Kate Middleton and Prince William, and, and if you remember just three years ago, there were over 300 million people worldwide that watched them get married and tie the knot. And given the age of Queen Elizabeth, many of us will live to see perhaps Prince Charles or Prince William take the throne as the next king of England. No doubt this coronation will be watched by millions more people. But the historical, in the historical background of all modern coronations of royalty, we find this psalm, Psalm chapter 2, which was written for the coronation of a Davidic king. That is someone who followed in the line of King David. In fact, most scholars believe this psalm would have been read at the, at the coronation of a new king. The priest who would oversee uh, the coronation of the king would have read perhaps the first and the last stanzas of this particular psalm, while the, the new king would then read the, the two middle stanzas of the psalm. And because Psalm 2 is a royal song, a, a kingly psalm, if you will, it's also a messianic psalm. And all I mean by the word messianic is that this psalm speaks beyond the, the historical context and it points to the Messiah King. And of course the Messiah King is none other than Jesus Christ. And so in speaking about this, this psalm is really, that's who it's about, that's who it's talking about. This second psalm is quoted in the New Testament as a prophetic reference to Jesus Christ, our glorious King. Now, as we said already last Sunday, we looked at Psalm chapter 1. But what is the connection between Psalm 1 and this psalm here, these two psalms? As we said last Sunday, Psalm 1 is kind of an introduction to all the psalms. It's kind of a, a gateway to everything that follows in the book of Psalms. In, and many people believe Psalm 2 is kind of the continuation of that introduction, a continuation of that gateway. So what then is the connection between Psalm 1 and Psalm 2? And why should we care? Why should you care? I mean, after all, what difference does it make in your life even today? After all, these Psalms were written thousands of years ago. We're living in the 21st century and so what difference does any of this make to our lives? Well, that's what I want to show you. And I think by the time we come to the end of this message, you will see this psalm has practical relevance for our lives even today. Psalm 1, what it does, is you, if you remember last Sunday, it contrasts the way of the wicked with the way of the righteous. And more importantly, Psalm 1 urges us, it challenges us, to consider and to choose which way we will live our lives. Because nothing is more important than living the way of the righteous rather than living the way of the wicked. Because in the end, the way of the wicked will end in eternal death. But the way of the righteous will end in eternal life. And that's why nothing is more important than choosing now which way you will live. Psalm 2 continues that same theme by declaring again that the way we live life now, listen, it makes a difference. It makes a difference for all eternity. And so notice in your notes, coming up on the screen, the connection between Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. The way the wicked in Psalm 1 becomes now a global revolt against the sovereign Lord in Psalm 2. But the way of the righteous in Psalm 1 takes refuge in the glorious King, which is Jesus Christ, here in Psalm 2. Psalm 1 begins, you may remember, with the word blessed. It said, blessed is the man who. And what we find in Psalm 2 is it ends with that same word blessed. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. And the hymn there is in reference to our glorious king. In Psalm 1, the righteous meditate on God's law. 
But in Psalm 2, the wicked meditate on how to cast off God's law and God's rule. Psalm 1 affirms the Lord's authority over our lives as individuals. But here in Psalm 2, it affirms the Lord's authority over all nations and over all peoples. And both realities are essential to our confidence in God Almighty as we live the way of the righteous. Let's be honest, though. It's difficult, especially in our day and age, in our culture, in our world. When we watch the news, when we read it on the Internet, it can be difficult to trust that God has control of the events of our life if you do not trust that God has control of the events of history. But it's easy, if I use that word relatively, let me say it can be easier to trust that God has your life in his hands, that you're secure in your relationship with the Lord. You're secure in that God is watching over you and protecting you if you trust that God has the world in his hands. And he is sovereign over what is going on in the world around us. This is the message of Psalm 2. It was assurance to the people in David's day that no one can stand against God's chosen kings and against God's chosen people. But it's also assurance, and it should bring confidence and comfort to us as his people today, as Christ followers, for all who trust in Christ now can be comforted by the fact that Jesus reigns even today. Now, I know when you watch the news and when you look around the world, it may not seem like that. It may not seem that way, but it is still true. Jesus Christ reigns as the glorious King. This past week, I watched the three-part series, The World Wars, on the History Channel. Anyone else see that? It actually started Labor Day, Memorial Day weekend, that Monday. And, uh, of course, I have, I have DVRs. By the way, DVR is the greatest thing since sliced bread. And DVR, all three, of the champ, uh, all three of the programs, and this past week took time to watch them at my convenience. And uh, basically, if you didn't see it, The World Wars is a mini-series event that takes viewers on this epic ride through the bloodiest century in history, focusing specifically on a 30-year global war that raged across Europe, Africa, China, and the Pacific. And what's interesting is that on D-Day, which, by the way, was just this last Friday, June 6, 1944, 70 years ago, was D-Day, when the Allied forces invaded the beaches of Normandy, ensuring victory for the Allied forces there in World War II. And yet, get this, the war continued until V-Day, which was May 7, 1945, when the peace treaty was finally signed. But did you know that more people were killed between D-Day and V-Day than any other period in that war? Likewise, we live between the inauguration of God's kingdom in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ and its consummation when Christ will return as king. And so in this now, but not yet, kingdom, it often seems as if the crucifixion of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, is, is not really making any difference in the world. It doesn't really matter. I don't, I, what, look what's happening in the world around us. It's not changed anything. But no matter how things may seem in this present world, Jesus reigns as glorious king. This is what the psalm wants us to know and walk out of here knowing with confidence. And Psalm 2 here declares this truth to us, that Jesus Christ is our glorious king, and it declares it in four acts or in four stanzas, whatever you want to call it. And so what I want us to do is simply show you this. Right out of the text of Psalm 2, these four acts, how Jesus Christ is our glorious King, and at the end, the difference that it makes in our life even today. Notice act number one. This first act, what we see is the rebellion of a sinful world. The rebellion of a sinful world. Verse one here 
sets the tone in this first stanza. Look at it with me. If you don't have your Bibles open, let me encourage you to open your Bibles to Psalm 2. Look what it says, or you can follow along in your notes there. Look what it says, the very first verse. It says, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? Now, this rhetorical question speaks of a multinational or even an international movement of rebellion. And the nature of this movement is described in two ways. The psalmist says the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing. Now, the word rage here refers to the tumultuous meeting of rebels, to plan an attack. And the word plot clarifies this raging of the world. In fact, what's interesting, this Hebrew word for the word plot here in Psalm 2 is the very same Hebrew word used for meditate in Psalm 1. And so note the contrast immediately here. The righteous meditate on what in Psalms 1? God's law. But here in Psalm 2, the wicked meditate and scheme and plot against God's law, against God's rule in vain. Verse 1 here suggests that this worldwide rebellion is a, a grassroots movement. But verse 2 tells us that this rebellion actually reaches the highest offices of authority. Look what it says. It says the kings of the earth. And what are they doing? They set themselves. And the rulers, what are they doing? They take counsel together. And of course, then we find out specifically what they're doing when they set themselves and take counsel. It's against the Lord and against his anointed. Now this phrase, set themselves, is a, is a military terminology. It speaks of taking a position of opposition in, preposition, in preparation of war. And it's difficult for world leaders to agree on anything, to come together and, and be on agreement. We hardly ever see that in our world today. And yet, right here in this psalm, we have a global coalition of world leaders unanimously agreeing to stand in opposition against God. But this opposition is not against the mere notion of a God. Let me tell you, this world... You know, it really doesn't have any problems with a generic, ambiguous God. As long as he stays his distance and doesn't interfere in our lives, the world has no problem with our God. A glorified Mr. Potato Head that we can kind of design at our discretion. That kind of God, the world has no problem with. The problem here is with Yahweh, that God. The self-existent, the self-sufficient, the self-revealing God of the Old Testament and the New Testament, whose purpose and power are represented here on earth by His anointed Son, Jesus Christ. You see, the world has a problem with that God and His Son, His anointed Son, Jesus Christ. This is why the world hates Jesus. This is why the world plotted to kill Jesus. In fact, you can go to the book of Acts, and what you will find there is that the early church recognized this kind of hatred against Jesus when they crucified him. Just listen to what it says in Acts chapter 4, verses 25 through 28. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed. So they're quoting this very psalm here. And it goes on and it says, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together. Here they're taking counsel. And with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. So when you see the world being antagonistic towards Christ, and those who follow Christ, it should come as no surprise to us. They hated Jesus when he was here on this earth, and they hate those who follow him even now. They hate the name of Jesus. 
And it goes back. You see the roots of it here in this psalm. Verse 3 even. Look what it says. It records the mission statement of the United Nations against God. It says, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. The world here is arrogantly declaring their refusal to submit to God's authority, describing it as bonds and cords. In other words, words, the world views God's authority as bondage, as slavery and oppression. And so their ultimate goal of the world is to break God's bonds and to cast away his cords. In other words, I don't want to live by God's rule. I don't want to live according to his laws and his word. I want to do my own thing, live my own life, because I think I know better than the one who created me. It's a rebellion against God and his authority, and ultimately against his son. And so what we see here in this first stanza is a global rebellion against God. The world here, notice in your notes, is scheming about this. They're standing defiantly against God and speaking arrogantly against God. This second psalm, what it does for us, it kind of pulls back the curtain. And it shows us a world that's in open rebellion against God. Just look around. And you can see this is still a very accurate description of our world today. Thousands of years after this psalm was written. You know, history is full of the world's opposition against God. Ever since Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God... We've been chafing at God's rule over this world and doing everything we can to live as if we're in charge. Nothing's really changed in the course of history. This is one reason why sin, folks, is so serious. We sometimes think, what's the big deal about just one little sin? What's the big deal about disrespect of my parents disobeying them? What's the big deal about disobeying God and not following him? What's the big deal about cheating on this and stealing this and just, just one little sin? What's the big deal? What's the big deal about a little sensuality in my heart and my mind and the lustfulness that I try to hide? What's the big deal about it? Listen, the reason sin is so serious is because it's not just a little sin. At the heart of it, every sin is an act of treason against God. It's, it's as if we're shaking our fist at God and saying, I choose to rebel against you and your rule. I will do it my way. Which is what we learned in the first Psalm 1. That is the way of the wicked. And so this helps us to understand a little bit what's wrong with the world. And who of us hasn't asked that every once in a while? What's wrong with our world? But more importantly, this psalm helps us to understand a little bit more what's wrong with me? What's wrong with us? What is wrong with us? Well, what's wrong is we have rebellious hearts, do we not? We're natural-born rebels against God and his rule. And what's wrong with the world is we live in a world where the nations rage and the people plot against God. However, they plot, the psalmist says, in a vain way. Or they plot a vain thing. Understand, this global rebellion is a futile rebellion against God. And that's what the psalmist wants us to know here. Look at this. Rebellion against God and his authority is doomed to fail. It is doomed to fail. And so no wonder the psalmist asked in astonishment this rhetorical question, why? why? Why would the nations rage like this? Why would the people plot such a vain thing when it's doomed to failure? Their plot to overthrow God will be empty. It will come to nothing. It's worthless and doomed to fail. In the turbulent days of the French Revolution, Revolutionaries stormed the Bastille in Paris, seeking to remove every vestige of law and order. And so one scaled the cathedral of Notre Dame and tore down the cross from atop its spire and just dashing it into pieces on the ground for everyone to see. And turning to a poor peasant, 
the rebel boasted, we are going to pull down all that reminds you of God. But someone from the crowd responded, then you might as well pull down the stars themselves. Folks, Psalm 19, when you read it this week, will declare that. Even the stars, even the creation declare the majesty and glory of our God. And so in this first act, David reveals for us an international plot to overthrow God and his rule. And in the second act, David reports God's response to this international rebellion, to this world rebellion, to this human rebellion. And if I could laser it in, folks, even to our rebellion. Notice God's response here. Act 2, it's the response of a sovereign God. So how does God respond to this global but feudal rebellion? Well, first of all, notice God is not surprised. God is not surprised by any of this. In contrast to the chaos on earth, there is perfect peace in heaven. We see this in verses 4 through 6. Look at it with me. Here's God's response. It says, He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Now what we see here is God's righteous response is twofold. First of all, we see that God sits in laughter at those who rebel. He sits in laughter Notice the contrast of moods between what's going on in heaven versus what's going on here on earth. While the nations are raging and the people are plotting, God is sitting in the heavens. God is not trembling in fear, nor is he pacing the throne room of heaven in worry and anxiety. God does not go to his war room to receive an intelligence briefing, nor does he need to flee to a secure location. He does not bunker down in an underground, secure environment as Hitler did when the allied nations were coming in on Berlin. The Lord, it says, sits in the heavens. In fact, he does not even rise from where he is sitting. This does not mean the Lord is distant. It doesn't mean the Lord is even indifferent to us. But rather, the Lord is beyond the reach of our rebellion. And what is God doing as he sits in the heavens? He's laughing. He's laughing at those who rebel against him. Why? Because human rebellion is divine comedy. God is amused by the pathetic attempts to impeach him. It's like a father laughing at his three-year-old son who says, let's wrestle, Dad, I can beat you. It's like what Jack used to do. Come on, Dad, let's go. And I'm just like, you're a peon. Who are you to wrestle against me? And we all know, we, we are, we're amused by that. It's funny, except this is not a pleasant laugh. This is a laugh of derision. It's a laugh of mockery, a laugh of contempt. And so when God laughs, folks, listen to me, it's not a funny thing. Verse 4 says, the Lord holds them, that is those in rebellion, in derision. Now why does God respond to the world's rebellion by laughing in derision? Well, you can go over to Psalm 37, verses 12 through 13, and it gives us an answer. It gives us some insight into this. Listen to what it says. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. That's why the Lord laughs. The Lord knows what is, what, what is the end so here's the picture. Picture it in your mind with me. Here's the picture. The nations rage. The peoples plot against God, but God is sitting in laughter. God is not sweating it out in heaven, trying to figure out what to do. He's firmly in control. He is sovereign. And that's why the second response of our Lord is this. God speaks in wrath to those who rebel. He speaks in wrath. First of all, God speaks to express his anger or his wrath, according to verse 5. Look what it says. 
It says, then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress or terrify them in his deep displeasure. Listen, God is not just a God of love. While we are grateful and thankful that God is a God of love, folks, listen to me, he is not just that. God is much more than just a God of love. He is also a God of wrath. As A.W. Tozer said, God's wrath is righteousness reacting against unrighteousness. And that's what we have here in this psalm. And so to rebel against God, listen to me, is to incite his wrath. And this creates a big problem for every one of us here this morning. When Paul wrote the book of Romans, he spent the first three chapters establishing one point. That every person, regardless of their religious background, whether they were Jew or Gentile, is under the judgment of God's wrath. Why? Because we're rebels at heart. We're sinners by birth, and we are sinners by choice. And therefore, we are under God's judgment and wrath. But thankfully, thankfully, God also speaks to affirm his anointed as king. Look what it says in verse 6. God says, I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. So notice the contrast here. Verse 2 says, the kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord and his anointed. But God responds by saying, I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. In other words, God is saying, oh, you may do such and such in opposition of me, but I will do this. Folks, listen, God will have the last word. And that's what we find here. And don't miss who's ultimately in control. The kings of the earth cannot stop God's sovereign plan. God has chosen His Son as King to rule the nations. And this is God's response to human rebellion. It's right there in your notes looking at it. Look at it with me on the screen. God's response to human rebellion is installing His Son as King over all humanity. Now, stop with me for a moment. And I want you to consider something. Consider this thought. Do you realize this psalm could have ended right here with God's wrath in verse 5? But that would be a pretty depressing way to end the psalm. And yet, that's the way things ended, get this, with the angels who rebelled against God. God laughed at their rebellion when they followed Lucifer out of heaven in rebellion. And God judged them. End of story. Done deal. And that's how it could have ended with us as well. But instead, oh, in grace and in mercy and in his sovereign plan of redemption, God responds to the world's rebellion by installing a king. And who is this king? Well, on one level, it's the descendants of King David who sat on the royal throne in Jerusalem, but their kingdom ended long ago. If you go to Jerusalem today, you will not find a descendant of David sitting on the throne. So who is this king? Well, on a prophetic level, this psalm ultimately points to Jesus Christ as king. And his kingdom is one that will never end. Woo! Hallelujah! And this brings us to the third act in this psalm. Act number three is the reign of a triumphant king. Jesus Christ is the one speaking now in this third act or stanza. And look at what he says in verses 7 through 9. He says, I will declare the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And so Jesus is telling us two things about his reign as the glorious king. First of all, notice this in your notes. Jesus is telling us that he will rule by divine decree. 
and with sovereign authority, number two, over all the nations throughout the earth. First of all, Jesus will rule by divine decree. You're like, man, what's that? What's this divine decree? What's that about? It's simply a decree from God the Father declaring that Jesus is the Son of God. It's as simple as that. You say, well, when did this decree take place? Well, according to Acts, if you go to Acts chapter 13, verses 32 through 33, we won't take time to read it, but it happened when God raised Jesus from the dead. It's not that Jesus all of a sudden became the Son of God at the resurrection. Let me tell you, Jesus was and is and always will be the Son of God. He's eternal. But at that empty tomb, it's kind of like as if God just kind of hung a banner in the sky with the words, listen, this is my Son. Pay attention to Him. I have set my Son as King over all the earth. Pay attention. That's kind of what's going on with this decree here. And so Jesus rules by this defined decree. In other words, his right of rulership comes by God the Father because he is God the Son. And so he has a right to rule over all the earth and over all the people. And that's why now Jesus will rule with sovereign authority over all the nations. In verse 8, God the Father says to God the Son, listen, ask of me. And what will God do? I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. In other words, the Father, God the Father, is so pleased with His Son that He gives His Son the nations as an inheritance. By the way, the same nations who, in verse 1, are doing what? Raging and plotting against God. God the Father says to the Son, I will give you those nations as your inheritance. In other words, their rebellion is doomed to fail. In fact, the Father also gives the Son the ends of the earth as his possession. In other words, the implication of that is the reign of Christ will ultimately extend to every corner of the world, of the earth. There isn't any part of it that will not be under the reign of Jesus Christ. Do you realize what this means? Do you understand the implication of this? God wants His Son, Jesus, to be made known in every nation to all peoples of the world. This is why Jesus commands us in Matthew 28, 19, a verse you're familiar with, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. This is why, folks, the mission of the church, it's why our mission as a church here at Glenwood is to spread the name of Jesus to all peoples in all nations until every ear shall hear and every knee shall bow. Because a day is coming when it will be too late for people to hear the name of Jesus. A day is coming when it will be too late for people to bow the knee volitionally on their own to Jesus Christ. And when that day comes, in that day of judgment, look what it says about Jesus in verse 9, what he will do. Look at it. It says of Jesus, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Folks, let that verse grab your attention. And let that verse grab your heart. Because this is not a pretty picture here in verse 9. The phrase rod of iron is a picture of judgment to come. And like a dish broken beyond repair, Christ will bring complete destruction to those who continue to rebel against His authority as the King. This may not fit, and I understand that it doesn't. This doesn't fit with our culture's version of a politically correct Jesus. But this is a true part of the biblical portrait of Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
Jesus is not an indifferent king. He's not an ambivalent king. He's not a king who doesn't care. He is a triumphant king. And even now, this king, Jesus, sits in the heaven at the right hand of the Father waiting for the day when every nation will bow before him as the king of kings. And so today, I understand that that seems impossible. That day will come as we consider the world scene of so many nations that are in rage and in turmoil, in chaos and conquering others. You just can't help but watch the news of what Russia's doing in Ukraine and in the Middle East. And it's like, when is this ever going to end? When is there ever going to be peace? When is the king going to reign? But what we see today, folks, listen to me, is not the last word from heaven. So what should we do? In light of what we see in this psalm, in these first three stanzas, how then should we here in this building respond and act? And how should the rest of the world do as well? Notice act number four. Our response to Christ the King. Our response. Listen, it is so important to see the ending of this psalm. God has given us here. He has revealed for us, even today, He has allowed us and given us the opportunity to see with a bird's eye view of history. This is the history of the world in 12 verses. But it's not meant just to be a history lesson to take a quiz over and to pass a grade on. Listen, this psalm ends with an ultimatum and then with an invitation. Notice what it says in verses 12 through, I mean 10 through 12. It says, now therefore. In other words, in light of everything we've read and we've learned in these first three stanzas, therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed or be warned, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. In what way? That term's familiar, is it not? The way? Obviously, it's the way. If you go back to Psalm 1, it's the way of the wicked. And you perish in the way of the wicked. When his wrath, that is Jesus' wrath, is kindled but just a little bit. So here's God's ultimatum to a rebellious world. That is this. We can summarize it this way. Be wise and kiss the sun in fearful and joyful worship before it's too late. The psalmist ends by speaking to kings and rulers who are described in verse 2. And they're now given an opportunity for mercy. Listen, our God is a merciful God. And he's given them an opportunity to avoid judgment, to avoid the wrath that is to come. He calls on them to recognize the reality of this truth, to recognize the reality of God's Son as King, and to be wise. That phrase, to be wise. Parents, it's the same thing we tell our kids all the time. And now God is telling us the same thing. It's the idea to come to your senses. You know how many times I've sat on Jack's bed and Tyler's bed and said basically the same thing? When are you going to learn? That's the idea here. Come to your senses. Don't be foolish. Think carefully about the consequences of your choices and act wisely. Here's the point. Listen to me. Wise men, wise people come to Jesus and they do it now while they still have a chance. And when you come to Jesus, the psalmist says, it's an interesting phrase, kiss the Son. Now, this is not a kiss of affection. 
It is a kiss of allegiance. This is not a romantic kiss like when I kiss my wife. No, no, no. It is a kiss of submission, a kiss of worship. In this context, kissing is a sign of homage. And we're invited now by God the Father to become servants who completely submit to the reign of Christ the King. And notice the urgency of this response in the rest of verse 12. It says, Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way, and when His wrath is kindled but a little. So we are now given a merciful, gracious warning here as well. It says, in other words, the idea is to kiss the Son now before it's too late. That's the warning. And folks, that is mercy being demonstrated. In light of this psalm, the choice is clear for every one of us here today. Verse 12 could not make it any clearer. Be wise and kiss the Son before it's too late. Pay homage to Him. Submit your life to Him and do so in fearful and joyful worship. As verse 11 says, in other words, there is a sense of joy in submitting to Christ the King. And I know that goes so contrary to our culture's thinking. We think the only way to have joy is to throw off the restraints. And we will find peace, and we will find joy, we will find everything we're looking for. But folks, that is the deception of Satan himself. It's what Satan tried to tell Adam and Eve back in Genesis. Joy is found in the person of Jesus Christ. Joy is found in submitting your life to God the Creator and living His ways because He knows what is best for us as His creation. And so there's a sense of joy here in submitting to Christ the King, but it's a joy that is also tempered by a holy fear of God. Because He's, yes, a God of love, but He's also a God of wrath. This is the wise choice. Kiss the Son in fearful and joyful worship before it's too late. That's the message of the psalm. The totality of this world can be summed up in one sentence. The whole world has been promised to Jesus Christ, a glorious King. And so live accordingly. Live the way of the righteous in worship of Christ the King. And you will be blessed because of it. God's final word in this psalm is an offer of grace. It's an offer of blessing. Verse 12 says, blessed are all those who put their trust in him. And so look at this, God's offer of grace and blessing. To wrap this up is, put your trust in Christ the King and you will be blessed. Why? Why put your trust in Christ the King now? Listen to me, because Jesus Christ is your only refuge when he comes in judgment. This is why verse 12 is also translated, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Or as Eugene Peterson puts it, but if you make a run for God, you won't regret it. I like that. Make a run for God. Or as one commentator aptly puts it, there is no refuge from him, only in him. A refuge is a hiding place. It's a strong tower. It's a place of security. And so this psalm is now a stark reminder that there will come a time when you will need a place of refuge. And that's the bad news. The good news is, though, that Jesus Christ is that refuge for all those who put their trust in Him. And those who do so, that is take refuge in Him, put their trust in Him, will be blessed. So this morning... Man, I come to you and I encourage you through the message of this psalm, don't run from Jesus. Run to Him. Put your trust in Jesus now while He still offers forgiveness and mercy. Jesus is the King, remember, who died on the cross in order to extend His forgiveness and mercy to rebels like us. God is the God of love. He demonstrated that love by sending His Son 
this king to die for us. And we now have the opportunity to respond, to take refuge in him, to put our trust in him, and to find that joy and that satisfaction and that peace that the world is clamoring for. But folks, that time is closing or, or coming to a close. Jesus could come back at any time. And when he does, he will come in a day of judgment with wrath for those who continue to rebel. Now is the opportunity. Run to Jesus while he still offers his forgiveness and his mercy freely. Put your trust in Christ the King. Kiss the Son now before it's too late. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning. And Lord, we come as rebellious people because we are rebels at heart. We are born with a rebellious heart, a sinful heart, Lord. And so we are part of this world that rages and plots against you. That is in our nature, Lord. And we need you to intervene in our lives and to open up our hearts and our eyes to see our need for your son, Jesus Christ. Not only as our Savior, but as our King. And so, Lord, I pray for those who have not kissed the Son in submission, that, Lord, you would draw us to him. And during this response time, Lord, they would cry out to you. They would express their heart's desire to have Jesus as their Lord and Savior, to have their sins forgiven, and to receive the gift of eternal life. Lord, I pray that you would move in their hearts. But Lord, perhaps there are some here who have already done that, but now we are balking at his rule and his law and the obedience of following him in his word. And so, Lord, as your children, help us to repent and confess our sins and to worship you all over again, joyfully and fearfully. And so work on our hearts as well. We pray these things in your son's name. As the praise team sings, they're going to sing a course of invitation, a response time. You respond right where you're at as needed, how God has spoken to you.